Chapter Nine Continued of the Afghan Wars, eighteen thirty nine to forty two and eighteen seventy eight to eighty. Part One The First Afghan War by Archibald Forbes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For months there had been negotiations for the release of the British prisoners whom Akbar Khan had kept in durance ever since they came into his hands in the course of the disastrous retreat from Kabul in January. But they had been unsuccessful, and now it was known that the unfortunate company of officers, women and children had been carried off westward into the hill country of Bamiyan. Not's officers, as the Kandahar column was nearing Kabul, had more than once urged him to detach a brigade in the direction of Bamiyan in the hope of effecting a rescue of the prisoners, but he had steadily refused, leaning obstinately on the absence from the instructions sent him by government of any permission to engage in the enterprise of attempting their release. He was not less brusque in the intimation of his declinature when Pollock gave him the opportunity to send a force in support of Sir Richmond Shakespeare, whom, with a detachment of Kuzilbash horse, Pollock had already dispatched on the mission of attempting the liberation of the prisoners. The narrow old soldier argued doggedly that government, quote, had thrown the prisoners overboard, unquote. Why, then, should he concern himself with their rescue? If his superior officer should give him a firm order, of course he would obey, but he would obey under protest. Pollock disdained to impose so enviable a duty on a recalcitrant man, and committed to sail the honourable and welcome service, all the more welcome to that officer, because his wife and daughter were among the captives. At the head of his Jalalabad brigade, he was to push forward by forced marches on the track of Shakespeare and his horsemen. The strange and bitter experiences of the captives, from that miserable January Sabbath day on which they passed under the quote, protection unquote, of Akbar Khan, until the mid-September noon when Shakespeare galloped into their midst, are recorded in full and interesting detail in Lady Sale's journal, in Vincent Eyre's Captivity, and in Colin Mackenzie's biography, published under the title of Storms and Sunshine of a Soldier's Life. Here it is possible only briefly to summarise the chief incidents of the captivity. The unanimous testimony of the released prisoners was to the effect that Akbar Khan, violent, bloody and passionate man though he was, behaved toward them with a kindness and a certain rude chivalry. They remained for nearly three months at Budiabad, living in great squalor and discomfort. For the whole party there were but five rooms, each of which was occupied by from five to ten officers and ladies, the few soldiers and non-commissioned officers, who were mostly wounded, being quartered in sheds and cellars. Mackenzie dryly remarks that the hardships of the common lot and the close intimacy of prison life brought into full relief good and evil qualities. Quote, Conventional polish was a good deal rubbed off and replaced by a plainness of speech quite unheard of in good society. 
unquote. Ladies and gentlemen were necessitated to occupy the same room during the night, but the men cleared out early in the morning, leaving the ladies to themselves. The dirt and vermin of their habitation were abominably offensive to people to whom scrupulous cleanliness was a second nature. But the captives were allowed to take exercise within a limited range. They had among them a few books, and an old newspaper occasionally came on to them from Jalalabad, with which place a fitful correspondence in cipher was surreptitiously maintained. They had a few packs of playing cards. They made for themselves backgammon and draught boards, and when in good spirits they sometimes played hopscotch and blind man's buff with the children of the party. The Sundays were always kept scrupulously, Lawrence and Mackenzie conducting the service in turn. The earthquake which shook down the fortifications of Jalalabad brought their rickety fort about the ears of the captives. Several escaped narrowly with their lives when walls and roofs yawned and crumbled, and all had to turn out and sleep in the courtyard, where they suffered from cold and saturating dews. After the defeat of Akbar by the Jalalabad garrison on April 7th, there was keen expectation that Sale would march to their rescue, but he came not, and there were rumours among the guards of their impending massacre in revenge for the crushing reverse Akbar had experienced. Presently, however, Mahomed Shah Khan, Akbar's lieutenant, arrived full of courtesy and reassurance, but with the unwelcome intimation that the prisoners must prepare themselves to leave Budiabad at once and move to a greater distance from Jalalabad and their friends. For some, preparation was not a difficult task. Quote, All my worldly goods, wrote Captain Johnson, might be stowed away in a towel. Unquote. Others who possessed heavier impedimenta were lightened of the encumbrance by the Gilzai Sirdar, who plundered indiscriminately. The European soldiers were left behind at Budiabad, and the band of ladies and gentlemen started on the afternoon of April 10th in utter ignorance of their destination under the escort of a strong band of Afghans. At the ford across the Kabul River, the cavalcade found Akbar Khan, wounded, haggard and dejected, seated in a palanquin, which, weak as he was, he gave up to ladies Macnaughton and Sale, who were ill. A couple of days were spent at Tazin, among the melancholy relics of the January slaughter, whence most of the party were carried several miles further into the southern mountains to the village of Zande, while General Elphinstone, whose end was fast approaching, remained in the Tazine Valley with Pottinger, Mackenzie, Eyre, and one or two others. On the evening of April 23rd, the poor general was finally released from suffering of mind and body. Akbar, who when too late had offered to free him, sent the body down to Jalalabad under a guard, and accompanied by Moore, the general's soldier-servant and Elphinstone lies with Colonel Denny and the dead of the defence of Jalalabad in their nameless graves in a waste place within the walls of that place. Toward the end of May the captives were moved up the passes to the vicinity of Kabul, where Akbar Khan was now gradually attaining the ascendant.
Prince Futejung, however, still held out in the Bala Hissar, and intermittent firing was heard as the weary cortege of prisoners reached a fort about three miles short of Kabul, which the ladies of the proprietor Zanana had evacuated in their favour. Here they lived, if not in contentment, at least in considerable comfort and amenity. They had the privacy of a delightful garden, and enjoyed the freedom of bathing in the adjacent river. After the strife between Akbar Khan and Futejong ceased, they were even permitted to exchange visits with their countrymen, the hostages quartered on the Balahisar. They were able to obtain money from the Kabul usurers, and thus to supply themselves with suitable clothing and additions to their rations, and their mails from India and Jalalabad were forwarded to them without hindrance. The summer months were passed in captivity, but it was no longer for them a captivity of squalor and wretchedness. Life was a good deal better worth living in the pleasant garden house on the bank of the Logger than it had been in the noisome squalor of Budiabad and the vermin-infested huddlement of Zande. But they still lived under the long strain of anxiety and apprehension, for none of them knew what the morrow might bring forth. While residing in the pleasant quarters in the Logger Valley, the captives of the passes were joined by nine officers who were the captives of Gunzi. After the capitulation, the latter had been treated with cruel harshness, shut up in one small room, and debarred from fresh air and exercise. Colonel Palmer, indeed, had undergone the barbarity of torture in the endeavour to force him to disclose the whereabouts of treasure which he was suspected of having buried. Akbar had full and timely intimation of the mutual intention of the British generals at Jalalabad and Kandahar to march on Kabul, and did not fail to recognise of what value to him in extremity might be his continued possession of the prisoners. They had been warned of their probable deportation to the remote and rugged Bamiyan, and the toilsome journey thither was begun on the evening of August 25th. A couple of ailing families alone, with the surgeon in charge of them, were allowed to remain behind. All the others, hale and sick, had to travel, the former on horseback, the latter carried in camel panniers. The escort consisted of an irregular regiment of Afghan infantry, commanded by one Saleh Muhammad Khan, who, when a subadar serving in one of the Shah's Afghan regiments, had deserted to Dost Muhammad. The wayfarers, female as well as male, wore the Afghan costume, in order that they might attract as little notice as possible. Bamiyan was reached on September 3rd, where the wretchedness of the quarters contrasted vividly with the amenity of those left behind on the Kabul plain. But the wretchedness of Bamiyan was not to be long endured. An intimacy had been struck up between Captain Johnson and Saleh Muhammad, and the latter cautiously hinted that a reward and a pension might induce him to carry his charges into the British camp. On September 11th there was a private meeting between the Afghan commandant and three British officers, Pottinger, Johnson and Lawrence. 
Saleh Mahomad intimated the receipt of instructions from the Sirdar to carry the prisoners over the Hindu Kush into Kulum and leave them there to seeming hopeless captivity. But, on the other hand, a messenger had reached Saleh from Mohan Lal with the assurance that General Pollock, if he restored the prisoners, would ensure him a reward of 20,000 rupees and a life pension of 12,000 rupees a year. Saleh Mahomed demanded and received a guarantee from the British officers, and the captives bound themselves to make good from their own resources their redemption money. The Afghan ex-Subadar proved himself honest. The captives were captives no longer, and they proceeded to assert themselves in the masterful British manner. They hoisted the national flag. Pottinger became once again the high-handed political, and ordered the local chiefs to come to his durbar and receive dresses of honour. Their fort was put into a state of defence, and a store of provisions was gathered in case of a siege. But in mid-September came the tidings that Akbar had been defeated at Tazim and had fled, no one knew whither, whereupon the self-emancipated party set out on the march to Kabul. At noon of the 17th, they passed into the safe guardianship of Shakespeare and his horsemen. Three days later, within a march of Kabul, there was reached the column which Sale had taken out, and on September 21st, Pollock greeted the company of men and women whose rescue had been wrought out by his cool, strong steadfastness. Little more remains to be told. There was an Afghan force still in arms at Istalif, a beautiful village of the inveterately hostile Kohistanis. A division marched to attack it, carried the place by assault, burnt part of it, and severely smote the garrison. Utter destruction was the fate of Charakar, the capital of the Kohistan, where Codrington's Gorkha regiment had been destroyed. Pollock determined to, quote, set a mark, unquote, on Kabul, to commemorate the retribution which the British had exacted. He spared the Balahisar, and abstained from laying the city in ruins, contenting himself with the destruction of the principal bazaar, through which the heads of Macnaughton and Burns had been paraded, and in which their mangled bodies had been exposed. Prince Futejung, tired of his vicissitudes in the character of an Afghan monarch, ceded what of a throne he possessed to another puppet of his race, and gladly accompanied the British armies to India. Other waifs of the wreck of a nefarious and disastrous enterprise, among them old Zimon Khan, who had been our friend throughout, and the family of the ill-fated Shah Sujah, were well content to return to the exile which afforded safety and quietude. There also accompanied the march of the humane Pollock, a great number of the mutilated and crippled camp followers of Elphinstone's army, who had escaped with their lives from its destruction. On the 12th of October, the forces of Pollock and of Knott turned their backs on Kabul, which no British army was again to see for nearly forty years, and set out on their march down the passes. Jalalabad and Ali Mujid were partially destroyed in passing. Pollock's division reached Peshawar without loss, thanks to the precautions of its chief. But with McCaskill and Knott, 
the indomitable afghans had the last word cutting off their stragglers capturing their baggage and in the final skirmish killing and wounding some sixty men of Knott's command of the bombastic and grotesque paeans of triumph emitted by lord ellenborough whose head had been turned by a success to which he had but scantly contributed nothing need now be said nor of the garish pageant with which he received the armies as they re-entered british territory at ferozepore as they passed down through the punjab dost mohammed passed up on his way to reoccupy the position from which he had been driven and so ended the first afghan war a period of history in which no redeeming features are perceptible except the defence of jellalabad the dogged firmness of Knott, and pollock's noble and successful constancy of purpose beyond this effulgence there spreads a sombre welter of misrepresentation and unscrupulousness intrigue moral deterioration and dishonour unspeakable end of chapter nine end of the afghan wars eighteen thirty nine to forty two and eighteen seventy eight to eighty part one the first afghan war by archibald forbes recording by philip griffiths